chapter 9 now. We are in verse 14, but I, I always think that I probably need to go back. Uh, uh, most, in most churches, you can't remember what the preacher even spoke on last Sunday, much less where, what book he was in. So it seems like it's useful to go back and review a little bit. Uh, what's, of, oh, what's of most importance on this screen is, is this heading. We're dealing with a question, in fact, a series of questions. Um, if God abandoned Israel, will he abandon us? That comes out of Romans 8, 39, 8, 39, 8, 38 and 39. Um, uh, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, you know the passage, shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he has abandoned Israel in some sense, and so uh, do we have any hope? And then secondly... Um, um, Paul, you say your gospel is what God's always intended people to, to believe, but Israel didn't accept it. And you yourself said in chapter 3 that they were the ones to whom the oracles of God came. And if they've gotten the oracles of God and don't believe your message, isn't that a, an invalidation of your message? And Paul's answer is going to be no. And as we pointed out last week, there are, the answer comes in five steps. The first step is here in chapter 9, where Paul asserts, in fact affirms, that, that is, God has hardened Israel. And this is hard for us. This is hard language. We're coming to one of the hardest, most difficult, painful passages in the book of Romans. Uh, so much is hopeful in Romans. This one's very painful for a lot of us, so we kind of have to sit back and say, well, what is there? What is it saying? How are we to understand it? So um, uh, the, the part of the answer, Paul says, God hardened Israel. The, the, this part of the answer in verses, what is that, 6 to 13, in every generation of Israel, God has made a distinction between, between the seed of the promise chosen by grace and the seed of flesh. But he had Abraham who had two sons. Yes? God chose Isaac, passed over Ishmael. Yes? God chose in Isaac's family, passed, uh, chose Jacob and passed over Esau. And if, if that were all that the text said, that would be hard enough. But look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. So God sits on the throne in heaven looking at Esau, and he thinks, yeah, can't even stand to look at that guy. What a horrid person he is. Amen? <laughs> uh, of course, the answer is no. Um, if that's what he meant, then what did Jesus mean when he said, uh, if, if anyone would come after me and does not hate his father and mother, who is the one who spoke the words, honor your father and mother? God did. Um, is, is there, does that mean Jesus could be at odds with God? Why not? He is God. So we can say that the voice speaking was the voice of God, which means then it is then that it is also the voice of the Son. Yes? 
who said, honor your father and mother. Then he said, if a man comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, he's not worthy of me. In what sense, Linda? Well, yeah, what, we, what we've got to do is think about what does this mean. Uh, the Bible constantly puts two statements together. These are not exactly together. I, uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated is 400 years earlier than Jesus speaking. But he puts ideas together and assumes that we'll be able to sort them out. Yes, sir? Yeah, the idea is essentially this. If I, if I have to make a choice in a certain circumstance, and the choice is between following the Lord and following my parents, then I have to choose my parents, and it ought to be second nature to do it. I'm sorry, what did I say? I changed my, excuse my parents. Yishka Bibble. <laughs> Freudian slip. I've always wondered, did Sigmund's wife wear them? But I don't know. Uh, Uh, the the point the larger point is then if it comes to to the decision whether to follow the Lord or follow human affections I must always I must always inherently opt for following the Lord never human preference does this make sense to you yes no yes. Uh, if that's the case then when God makes a choice he opts for Jacob and he passes by Esau. Yes? Uh, if you go back to the story of Genesis and look at Esau, in fact, by the time Jacob gets back to, Her to Canaan with his 12 kids plus Dinah, yes? The 12 sons plus Dinah. Um, well, it's 11 sons at that point plus Dinah. Um, Esau, in his genealogy, already has kings who are descended from him. He has already 12 tribes and kings descended from him. So what is it, what is God communicating when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? Well, he gave the land of Canaan to Jacob and gave the land of Seir or Edom to Esau. Uh, Edom is, I, I, I have driven through that part of the, yeah, I've, I've driven through that part of the area. I can't imagine anybody living there. But they raise sheep there and goats. I can't understand it. Mark Twain, when he was in Galilee, which is a much more rainy area than Edom was, when he was in Galilee, he said, I saw goats out there. They were eating rocks. <laughs> he said, they must have been eating rocks because as far as I could tell, there wasn't anything else out there to eat. But... <laughs> Uh, so if you can if you can graze goats in an area like uh, Edom, then you can have a fairly good living. Does this make sense? And so it's that that God gave Jacob preference over Esau because though Esau was the firstborn, God doesn't choose the way man chooses. Yes, you and I can be awfully thankful for that. Because we cited, I think, last week, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26. Consider your calling, brothers, that there are not many wise, not many powerful, not many well-born. By, by the way, notice he doesn't say not any, but not many. 
For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So when Chris Christopherson sang, Why Me, Lord? <laughs> what have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings you give? Nothing. There's nothing in me. Are you with me here? So this is where we're headed in this. Is it the case, as we said last week, is it the case that God's deciding between descendants of Abraham ceased with the generation of Jacob? And the answer is no. All through the history of Israel, there's always been a remnant, according, as Paul will say in chapter 11, uh, maybe I ought to read it from the Bible instead of quoting it. Turn to Romans 11. It's easier to take if it comes from the Bible than if the guy speaking just cites it. So 11 chapter, uh, chapter 11, uh, verse uh, 5. So also, even in the present time, there is a remnant. How, how did the remnant get to be the rep- remnant? By God's choice, according to the election of grace. Are you with me here? That's following upon what he said just a couple of verses before Paul did in Romans 11, citing from the book of 2nd King, 1st King, 2nd Kings, um, um, uh, verse 3, Elijah said, Lord, they have killed the prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what does the oracle say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down to Baal. I have left for myself. I have reserved them. Does this make sense to you? So God has reserved a remnant within Israel. As Paul, we pointed this out last week, as Paul will say in chapter 11, I myself am part of the remnant. So if that's the case, in Israel, God has made a distinction. Some are the seed of the serpent. Some are the seed of the flesh. Others are the seed of uh, of grace and of the Spirit. Okay? So, let's look at it. Verse 14. What then shall we say? There is not injustice with God, is there? You know, we asked this question last week. At, at Christmas time, do you give presents to everybody you know? Do you give presents to everybody in your family? No. You don't? Why? What unjust people. Don't you, don't you have justice in your soul? And the answer is, of course I do, but I don't have the obligation to give my gifts to everybody equally. So how come we think God must? To be just, God has to give something, the same thing to everybody equally. He says there's not an injustice with God, is there? What, what, what's the answer to that? No. Do you believe that? Problem is, God does things that we don't like, and because we don't like them, we think they're unjust. We think that we have a better concept of justice than God has. We're more righteous than God, and we can tell him, hey, come, come here, God, I need to talk to you about justice. I need to sit down and listen, because i got some things you need to understand. We don't let hurricanes hit Florida. It's not a matter of justice or injustice. It's a matter of living in a fallen world. 
Yes? It's, it's the lot of humanity. We live in a fallen world. It's the way things work. When sin is a hurricane in the soul, the world's going to have an, a hurricane at sea. Yes, sir? If I were just, totally just, we would all perish. That's right. You want justice? Let's talk justice. What I deserve from God is everlasting condemnation. But out of the pool, cesspool of, uh, of human sinfulness, God has redeemed us for his own purposes in order that his grace may be exalted. So he says, there's not injustice with God, is there? By the way, he asked that question back in chapter 3 in the same context. Is it unjust in God to judge Israel because of their unbelief? And the answer is no. no. So verse 15, for he says to Moses, I, I will be merciful to him. Do you, you have I will be merciful? Have mercy. Have mercy uh, uh, on him whom I will have mercy and I will show compassion to him to whom I will show compassion. Um. Let me stop just a minute and say this this is a quotation from the Old Testament, and that means it's translation out of Hebrew. Yes? All right. Um, in some measure, when you have a translation, the, 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 the necessity becomes uh, present for us to go back and look at the Hebrew and find out what it meant. When the United States and Japan had a, a treaty at the end of the war, um, there were two versions of the treaty written, one in, J- in English, one in Japanese. Yeah. So, uh, but if there were disputes about what the meaning of the treaty was, how, did they, how would you start to settle the dispute when there are two languages in view? Yeah. You designate one of them as the official form. Does that make sense? So, which is the official form of this statement, I will show mercy to him whom I will show mercy, and I have compassion on him whom I will have compassion? Is it the Greek translation, or is it the Hebrew that, that Moses wrote? The Hebrew. Here's an interesting reality. This word for mercy, what's the matter? Are you making, you're making jokes, Mike. No, 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 she just said Greek. She got the answer wrong. Oh, got the answer wrong. <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> uh, uh, we've only been married 47 years. So that's you understand. Yeah. So, so I, when I go back to the Hebrew Bible, two things are going on in this passage. Number one, this word is an unusual word for mercy. In Romans, it, do, it hasn't shown up to this point in, cha- in Romans at all. This is the first occasion when it occurs in the book of Romans. And it will occur through chapter 11 and only twice more in the rest of the book. It seems like it's significant. Would, it, it occurs, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, um, 7 times in chapters 9, 10, and 11 but only twice in the rest of Romans altogether. In Romans 12, it's a different word for mercy. I, will, I, I beseech you, therefore, God, by the mercies of God. It's a different word for mercy. 
So this is a unique word. I have to ask, well, why does it show up here and never before and only very limitedly in the rest of the book? And the answer I have is, is because Paul is trying to communicate something from the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, this word, if may I paraphrase it from your text, it's uh, the text is, if I've lost the, the reference now in my mind, um, you will have a, a, a uh, uh, cross-reference in your text, no doubt, to Exodus. It's probably around chapter 9. 33.19. Is that? Okay. 9.16. Uh, this is, this is uh, the one, primarily. Um, in Hebrew, if I were translating this, I might say this. I will have grace on whom I will have grace, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. In, that, in light of that, I, looked, I have this marvelous resource that has just become available to look at the, transla- the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They give you all of the, word by word, through the, Hebrew by, through the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew words that translate any given word in the text. It's amazing. The most common Hebrew word that this word translates is hanan, to have grace or to be gracious. So my, my impression is that this is a special use of this word uh, uh, mercy, where grace is the point. And that's going to be in, in quite important very soon. I wanted to make that point. God gives grace. Before we're done with this passage, we're going to have to deal with verses 22 and 23, perhaps the most painful portion of this section. Um, And in verse 22 and 23, Paul distinguishes uh, the the some who receive wrath and the others who receive, your text says, mercy. In verse 22, I think, uh, no, 23, yes? But But same word, I think it should be grace. Folks, if every, let me back off just a step here. Why does God do anything? bring glory to his name so if he's going to bring glory to his name and he wants to give grace then it's essential that people that somebody come to perceive it as grace yes what is grace (coughs) yes but what is grace good let me give a little fuller uh, definition of it uh, unmerited favor could, is, is a, a, a nice quick phrase to express the idea, but it's not enough. It needs a lot more. It's a lavishing of his love upon us. Yes. Well, let, me, let me stipulate some things. It will all be there, I, I think. Grace is the favor of God shown to those who have forfeited all claim on God's favor for the sake of Jesus. God's favor given for the sake of Jesus to those who have forfeited all claim on his favor. That's why it's essential in Romans 1, 2, and 3 to establish that we're all sinners and deserve nothing but the infinite wrath of God. And the favor of God that's that's bestowed upon us then is the favor that he then unfolds in the latter part of chapter 3 on into chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Are you with me here? 
So he has, uh, as Ephesians 2 says it, he has uh, raised us together from the dead with, with Christ. He has raised us from the dead. He has, he has um, seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. He's lavished. How did you say it again? Lavished his love upon us. Yeah. He is, it, it, all that we've been talking about up to this point in chapter 8, up, up through chapter 8, is all the love that God has lavished upon us, forgiving us our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Yes? Indwelling us by his spirit. All these things that, that we could just go through the New Testament, elaborate. Um, all of this is his lavishing his love upon us. But we are people who deserve nothing from him but infinite wrath and everlasting separation from his presence. Would you repeat the definition yeah. one more time? Grace is the favor of God shown to those who have forfeited all claim on God's favor, but shown for the sake of Jesus. You know the story of Mephibosheth. Yes, David and Mephibosheth. Um, God, I'm sorry, David, wants to show, and he says it twice, and he uses a slightly different phrase in each, in each occasion. Show favor for the sake of Jonathan is one of them. But second, he says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show God's favor? Right? So then he takes Mephibosheth, who is the banished heir of the, of the throne of King Saul. Yes? Who is lame in both feet. He lives in Lodabar, and we play pointed out last week that Lodabar can mean nothing. He lives in nowhere. He's a real nowhere man living in a nowhere land, spelling out his point of view to nobody. Uh, so, so this is Mephibosheth. And David brings him not only back into the kingdom, but to the heart of the kingdom, to the capital of the kingdom, to the palace of the king, not to be judged but to be given a, he, all of his estates are returned to him. Yes? And he's, he will have all the income from all of his estates, but he'll never have to spend a dime because he will be given a seat at the king's table as a, as a son of the king for the rest of his life. Does that sound familiar? That's our story. That's, our story. <laughs> That's my story. Fred? Any heir, any potential heir, but David is a different kind of king. He is not king. He is the he is the regent of the king. The true king is God. David comes nearest failure when he comes nearest forgetting that. So he's it's in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, but David's in Jerusalem. He's not a king. He is a war leader who is who is under the under the command of the true king who sends him out to battle. And when he stayed home, he was he was dallying with his perception of who he was the point then is that that this is what grace is it's favor shown to the undeserving to 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 those who are in fact enemies but shown for the sake of somebody else in this case in in david's case it was shown for the sake of jonathan but it was god's favor shown for the sake of jonathan same thing is happening here so verse uh, now, I, I got into this by asking, what does, why does God do anything to show his, to, to reveal himself? 
then when he shows grace, he does it so that people may learn. Somebody, anyone who pays attention can learn what kind of person he is, yes? If you and I have received grace and everybody else, all other sinners in world history receive the same grace, it will still be grace, but nobody could see what it was, how it was different from love or, or mercy. When a criminal in court convicted and he's facing sentence stands before the judge and says, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. What's he want? Does he want any justice? He wants, he wants the softening of justice at, at worst, at best, no justice at all. Dif- grace differs from mercy in that grace has to be based in justice. It has to be. Now, not justice to the recipient. Justice has, is due to God. Any, any governor who will not protect his rule has no right to rule. And when people violate the laws of the state and the governing officials will not execute justice, they have given up their right to rule. God has not given up his right to rule. He cannot. It's his nature to rule. So he must execute justice, but he need not do it against the sinner. He may do it as he, as he has done, against a substitute. Yes? But supposing every last human being in all of history received grace equally, how would we be able to see what the justice that was due us was? How would we be able to see what's different between love and mercy on the one hand and grace on the other? So God does two things. He shows grace and he shows justice. Grace to those on whom he lavishes grace. The rest get justice. It, it intrigues me. Frankly, I'm fundamentally intrigued by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that we will judge the world? I don't know what that means exactly. It may have, I can think of at least two meanings immediately in my mind that are not necessarily what, I, what, what I'm going to talk about. But supposing that our judging the world means that each of us will have a courtroom and before us will be brought a certain set of sinners who are to be condemned. And as, as we go through our docket, person by person, I have this notion if this would be the right view, I don't think it is, but if it would be the right view. Uh, I have this notion that everybody that would come before my court would have sinned just exactly like I have. And I will have to pronounce the judgment that I am due. So I become very, very, very aware of what I deserve. And deepening constantly in my thankfulness to God for what he has done for me. The judgment seat of Christ becomes essential without revealing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, each one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It is essential that he reveal the bad 
because it is essential that God's grace in us be revealed. So you will see, and I, see I'm an A, and that means I'll come up early in the list. Yes? So, so don't scoff, because what goes around comes around. Amen? But, but he's going to, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm thinking of it in entirely human ways. But he's going to reveal all the sin I've committed. So that God's grace in saving me will be seen to be all that it is. Yes? Mm -hmm. And then all of my service will be revealed so that it will be clear that all the service I've ever rendered is his work in me. Not my work for him. It's his work for me. It's his reward to me. Our president... When I say our president, I know what I'm talking about. You don't. You're thinking of Trump. I'm thinking of Bailey. Uh, Mark Bailey said recently, I want to to institute something for you uh, on the faculty and the staff. He said, when a student or someone thanks you for something you've done for them, I want you to learn to say it's my privilege. Mm -hmm. This is the privilege. Any service I render is a privilege God has given me. Mm -hmm. I must look look at it in those terms. Uh, the effect of this is, in order for grace to be seen as grace, there must be a, a coordinated revelation of justice along with it. If there is no revelation of justice, then none of us understands what grace is. The more that I see of the justice of God in his work in Jesus, in his work in condemning the lost, the more I see the grace that I have received in Christ. So, uh, verse 15 starts by making this fundamental statement. God thinks, I know he's unjust. Now, at Dallas Seminary, our generation, uh, Emmanuel Christian and I were on campus together. And from, uh, he, went, he graduated in 78, I graduated in 77. And we heard Dr. Howard Hendricks. How many times did we hear Hendricks and watch him? And he'd say kind of, some kind of kind of off-the-wall statement, and then he'd go, remember that? <laughs> Which was to say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> so, so, so here we are. Um, God, who is not just, or is perfectly just, thinks he has the right to distribute his mercy the way he wants to. Uh, Verse 16, so then, it's not of him who wills. (laughs) My will entered into the event, but it's not because of my will. Uh, My favorite professor said, he he, he said, he heard about a bragamony meeting. He called them bragamony meetings. They used to call them testimony meetings, but it was often a place where you could get up and tell all that you've done for God. But he said, I heard a fellow speaking in a bragamony meeting one time. And he said, uh, uh, when I got saved, I did my part and God did his part. And he said, oh, goodness, what's coming now? And the the guy said, God did all the saving and I did all the sinning. (laughs) Uh, God, God does not wait for us. We used to attend a church here in the Metroplex. And they'd sing periodically on Sunday mornings, the Savior is waiting to enter your heart. 
And I felt like we ought to start crying for poor God who's... Why, why, why won't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? Time after time he has waited before and now he's waiting again. Poor thing, he's just miserable because you won't let him save you. What kind of God is that? It's no God I want to serve. So it's not of him who wills, nor of him who, who, who is engaged in effort. I don't go seeking God. What does Paul say in Romans uh, 3, 10 to 18? There's none who seeks God. Let me, let me just point out some verses to you in elsewhere in the New Testament. To a couple of them in John. Um, this, this is hard now, folks, so hang on. Um, let's see, I didn't go back far enough in John. Here we go. Um, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. says again, for this reason I told you, no one can come to me unless it is given to him by my Father. Or again, in John chapter 15, he says to uh, the to the Pharisees, I'm sorry, to the disciples. Yeah. Okay, uh, I am the vine; you are the are the branches. The one who abides in me, and I in him, this one bears much fruit. Because without me, you can do nothing. Well, if saved people can do nothing apart from Jesus. Then in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. What does cannot mean? When you asked your mama, can I go to the movies? What did she say? You can, but you may not. <laughs> So can has to do with ability. May has to do with permissibility. Yes? We don't have the ability. If I don't have the ability to even serve Christ apart from him, how in the world, as a lost man, am I going to move in my life so that he responds to me and he will love me? No. God sets his love on people. That's, a, that's the amazing thing. We saw this in Romans chapter 8. Whom he foreknew, he did also predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. So, verse 17, Romans 8, 17, 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this reason I have raised you up to show in you my, my power, and that my name might be pronounced or announced in all the earth. For this reason I raised you up. I had a I was teaching this in Memphis one time, and there was a physician in the class. Glenn, you will immediately understand the foolish question I'm about to ask, and you may have the same look on your face that he had. I said, in any conception event, when a child is conceived, how many different persons could be conceived? And he kind of, I, I, he, his first look on his face was, how am I ever going to answer that? And his answer was, what would you say, Glenn, to that stupid question? 
Yeah. Yes, that's right. I'm thinking more medically than I am theologically at this point. Yeah. Yeah, the fastest one. <laughs> the fastest one, she said. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, it's, it's the point is that the first problem there is to define what's, what a different person is. But the second problem is, how do you even answer that? So, so when this pharaoh's mother was pregnant, how did this man come from that conception? Except that God guided all the, all the way that that child would develop through genetics and through his own his education and all of his training. But here is the one point you've got to keep in mind about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is this, not this wonderful, fine, kind, godly, God-fearing man sitting on the throne of Egypt listening to Moses. And he says, Moses, I, I want to do, do this. God won't let me. He's making me rebel. Pharaoh thinks he's a god. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? So what does it mean? What does it mean that God raised him up? Somebody else might have been put on the throne. Wouldn't have to be this boy. Yes? So why is this man on the throne? Because God wants to, wants to show the hardness of the human heart, demonstrate how wicked it is that he will send ten plagues on Egypt. And after, after many of the plagues, you know the story, after several of the plagues, Pharaoh says, get out of here. Yeah, you got to get out of here. We're dead people. And then he hardens his heart again. Yes? Um, so, look at verse 18. So then, it, it, it is not... Um, oh, so therefore then, whom God wishes, he shows grace to. Same word, right? Same word. And him whom God wishes, he hardens. And what does this hardening mean? This is, the part, this is where it starts getting real tough. How do, we, how do we understand this hardening? Hardening is not God taking... Remember Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against all, some unrighteousness. All, all unrighteousness. Does that include all unrighteousness of all people? Yeah, it'd have to be. I mean, if you're going to reveal wrath against all unrighteousness, then you have to do it against wherever it's found. Yes? And that climaxes, that one, what begins in 118, climaxes in Romans uh, 3, verses 10 to 18. There's none righteous, no, not one. In chapter 1, he's talking, as far as I understand, he's talking about the whole human race. In chapter 2, he starts to single out the self-righteous among them. And then in 317, he starts to single out the, the, the Jewish self-righteous among them. And if the righteous among Jews are under the condemnation, this is his point in Romans 319, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, if all Jews are condemned, then all self-righteous people are condemned, and all the human race is condemned. There is no one righteous. There is no one that God can reward for what they have done. Brother, I put you off. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It's in the context of being redeemed. Okay. All right. As a redeemed person, are there times when God will show the redeemed person grace, and other times when He will show them mercy? No. Uh, yes. Yes. 
Uh, we've talked about discipline from God in the past. Um, discipline when it is when it when it is um, retributive, when He's dealing with something bad that we have done. He does it in mercy because He doesn't give us all that we deserve. He gives us what we can handle so that we'll grow up. So yeah, there's always mercy involved. But but grace is is founded in discipline is not founded in justice. Uh, grace is. I have to have the just work of Christ in order to have grace. Go ahead. Contact in Mongolia is as an example of this. That's right. My contact, my, and I can see in the first email there was a search. Yeah. And I rejoiced. I began praying for him. Right. The search. Yeah. So it's hard now. There's plastics. Stuff may eventually harden, but it may take forever, for yeah. a very long time. Yeah. It may not harden in our lifetime. You add a little bit of a catalyst. Mm-hmm. And bang, it's hard in five yeah. minutes. Right. And our heart, if, if, I don't know what is the human part of this. Yeah. Or even if it's what we see yeah. the Holy Spirit work and we rejoice in the Holy Spirit work in yeah. the searching. I, yeah. They start to search and search for truth. They diligently seek Him. Yes. Yeah. The, the, there are larger issues you're asking about that I with uh, four minutes left in the morning I can't uh, address. Let me, let me address two parts of it. There are some people who soften and then harden again. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who soften and go all the way to faith. So what the question has to be now is, what, what do we mean by hardening in this text? Mm-hmm. Looking again at Pharaoh, and he's the, he's the test case, yes, mm-hmm. in the text. He's the test case. So looking at Pharaoh... God hasn't taken some very wonderful, kind, godly man and turned him into this wicked sinner. He's taken a man who thinks he's a god, and he's giving him more opportunity to express all his rebellion against the true and living God that's already in his heart. If every, well, if, if every human being did all the sin that was in our hearts to do, this, this place wouldn't be recognizable. This world would be horrid. So in the, you remember the story of Abraham and King Abimelech of Gerar? Move your heads. Some is and some ain't. Some of you are just staring. So <laughs> King Abimelech was uh, king of a Philistine city. And um, uh, Abraham stayed there, period. Uh, he lied about Sarah and got caught. And uh, God appeared to Abimelech in a dream at night. And he said, you're a dead man. You've taken another man's wife. He said, will, will you judge me? My, my, my heart was, was clear in this. He told me, she told me, that they were brother and sister. God says, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. Therefore, I kept you from sinning against me. 
What's going on? How come this world is as stable as it is? It's hard for us to think of it as being stable, but think, folks, if, if all the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, restraining evil, were removed from this world, where would we be? We'd be in the tribulation. That's where we'd be. Yeah. Then, if that's the case, hardening is taking away the restraints and giving them opportunity to, to, to show more of the sin that's in their hearts. Romans 1. Yeah, it's Romans 1, precisely. Yeah. So, the, so what, what Paul is saying about Pharaoh, what Paul is saying about Israel. Folks, it's what we said a few minutes ago. If we got justice, if we really want justice, then what you're going to have is the everlasting enmity of God. In the mercy of God, he has, he has moved in our lives. And part of the answer, Glenn, to, to another part of your question, is Philippians 1.29? Do you know? You probably don't. Philippians 1.29 is not one of the big ones that we memorize. But Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been given, and by the way, the Greek word there, echariste, is, the verb is derived from the word charis, grace. It is a gift of God's grace, not only to believe in his name, but also suffer for his sake. We have been given two great gifts in the Christian life. One is suffering for the sake of, God, of, of Jesus. <laughs> and two, the gift of faith. It is topistoing, for those of you for those of you who know the original languages, but uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 an articular infinitive. Uh, I've been teaching Hebrew long enough. I've got two, two different kinds of infinitives in my mind. It's a, it's a present articular infinitive, which means the believing. Why do you have faith? Because God gave it to you. Um, so why is Israel unbelieving? God's had this people as Paul writes, for 15 centuries. And they've remained in open rebellion against him consistently. Only in rare circumstances does the nation respond more in faith than in unbelief. God delays his wrath, brothers and sisters, as long as he may do it without becoming unjust. But when it comes, it comes hard. And here is the here is the hardening of Israel. He's, he's laying this up. Are you with me here? We haven't left the question of Israelite unbelief in talking about this. We're still talking about that. So when God distinguished between Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac's giving the, given the blessing. But folks, was Ishmael excluded from salvation? No. When God distinguished between Jacob and Esau, he gave the blessing to Jacob. Was Esau excluded from salvation? No. Were his descendants excluded? No. When God gave the 12 tribes the blessing in Genesis 49 and again in Genesis 33, all of them got the blessing in one way or another. Does that mean every last one of them is saved? No. When God chose Seth... When God chose uh, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, um, is, the, is all of the line of, of Seth saved? No. How do you know? Because only Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives were saved in the flood. Are you with me here? 
the, the, the choice is not first and foremost to, at least in the Old Testament, is not first and foremost to salvation. It's first and foremost to the point of having the privilege of passing on the blessing to bring about Jesus and, and final salvation for the human race. But people in all camps have, an, have opened to them the gospel. You will say, but if God hasn't chosen them, how can they believe? As a man said, uh, I, I heard it, my favorite professor tell the story, and with this we'll close. He said, a young man went to his preacher. He was just learning what he called the doctrines of grace. He was learning election. And he said, what shall I do? How shall I preach? There might be some non-elect there. And his older pastor friend mentoring him said, you go ahead and preach to him. If one of the non-elect gets saved, God will save him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the large issue is that we don't have to worry about the things that God has reserved in his own hands. What we have to do is understand what kind of God we serve. He is a just God. But we're not, not with the justice as we have defined justice. Justice for us is what I like. But no murderer being executed likes it. Still just. So be careful of what you ask for. <laughs> Let's close with prayer. Father, remind us that Peter said, it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved. We're only beginning to confront some of that in our studies, just as we're going. How, how easy might it have been for you to pass by this little boy in Britain, Oklahoma, to almost anybody else but this little boy became the recipient of your grace. And you have given me the privilege of suffering for your sake, the little bit of suffering that I've done. You've given me the privilege of serving you, knowing you, having eternal life. You, you have made me pastless and future full. All my past was nailed to the cross with Jesus. All my future is seated at your right hand. So, Father, cause us to understand and embrace the depth of your grace for us, its breadth and height, width, so that we may, so that we may in fact lay hold of the privilege that it is for us to be your children. It's in Jesus' name, therefore, that we pray. Amen. Amen.